0: The following discussion is a reformatted podcast version of one of Ideas Roadshow's first 100 film conversations that's also available in video and print formats. Visit IdeasRoadshow.com for more details. We've all said it at some time or another, determined to assuage those who have, through momentary anxiety, lost their vital sense of perspective. It's not the end of the world. But according to medievalist Jay Rubinstein, the notion of the end of the world played a seminal role in why, exactly, the First Crusade occurred in 1099, an argument that he develops in his engaging book, Armies of Heaven, The First Crusade and the Quest for Apocalypse. I had the pleasure of catching up with Jay to discuss his work when he was at the University of Tennessee. Anyone similarly motivated these days can find him at the University of Southern California. I'd like to ask you a question to start, okay. which may come across as, as um, you've probably heard this before, but it may come across as being uh, slightly uh, pompous or, or, or at least pejorative in some particular way, quite an obvious way when you hear my question, which I'll eventually <laughs> get to asking, which is, here you are, somebody who has a PhD from Berkeley, you're a Rhodes Scholar, you're a MacArthur Fellow and you're teaching medieval history at the University of Tennessee. Mm-hmm. Um, I know nothing about this field, but I was shocked to find that the University of Tennessee would even have a medieval studies department, let alone someone of your uh, obvious level of scholarship and so forth. Is that How did you come to be at Tennessee? How, did, how does that happen? How come you're not mm-hmm. at some fancy yeah. Ivy League school somewhere?
1: I should say I've been passed over by many Fine institutions for <laughs> employment in my life. Um, as, that's the negative side of things. On the, the positive side, the University of Tennessee has a pretty amazing medieval studies program, which is certainly not something you would expect to find at an SEC school in in the heart of the South. Right. Uh, we, Before I arrived, the medieval studies program won what they call an NEH Challenge Grant. And the premise of the Challenge Grant was... If you raise well if if you can raise two point four million dollars, we'll give you six hundred thousand dollars for medieval studies. Right. I think the medieval studies program had gotten some support from the university because somebody in the upper echelons of the administration had the vision that everybody is always trying to improve their school in particular fields, usually in the sciences, which cost a lot of money. Right. The humanities are cheap and for the cost of setting up one lab, you can run a program for years in the humanities. And you can
0: achieve real excellence. But why Medieval mm-hmm. Studies in particular? How did that, How did that? How, why focus um, on that? You'd
1: probably have to ask someone who had been here a bit longer. There was a competition among the different programs, as I understand, to see which one would be the best for the university to invest in. And Medieval Studies had had at least a foot in the door at, at that stage. There were enough people on the ground, they were having meetings and Doing a little bit of community outreach, so right. uh, the ball had started rolling, and it and it
0: kept rolling. Well, yeah. that, that's obviously mm-hmm. fantastic, and it's certainly proof of the of the notion which uh, which one sees all around all around us, which is that there are really interesting people doing really interesting things all over the place. And it's it's certainly uh, just blatantly false to assume that everybody who's anybody is necessarily at one particular place. But I, I was shocked by that when I was reading Armies of Heaven and so forth. I ah, thought, this guy's a really interesting fellow, clearly very well-established. Tennessee is, a, I'm sure, a wonderful place, And but he mm-hmm. would not necessarily associate it, uh, if you're someone from the outside who doesn't know mm-hmm. anything about this particular field, with medieval studies. And so that's mm-hmm. an interesting, seeming juxtaposition from, from, from my perspective. Yeah. So, so, sorry. So
1: we've been very lucky. We've, we've got people on the ground, and that was because at some point we decided, yes, this is a field we're going to invest in. So. Right. We ha- I have a colleague who specializes in Islamic Christian exchanges, Tom Berman, in the Middle Ages. We have a couple of people working in the history of the later Roman Empire. We have good people in the English department. So, yeah, we've we've put together a real program. So
0: this, the, does the university actually brand itself this way? Is there a certain sense where they recognize that this is a point of excellence and come to come to Tennessee and be a medievalist? I mean, is
1: there... There is is actually a little bit of that because you do want to emphasize your strengths across the curriculum. And I think um, I'm not being immodest to say medieval studies is the strongest interdisciplinary program here. So when the university wants to point out how it is strong in fields, you wouldn't expect... Medieval studies is one of the ones they, they would turn to.
0: So it's interdisciplinary in, in which discipline? So so history, presumably, religious studies perhaps? Or mm-hmm. what, are there yeah. any others? That
1: the big two are... Mathematics? His- <laughs> is, 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 yeah. <laughs> we don't have a, a medieval mathematician yet. <laughs> okay. um, an abacus specialist, as far as I know. Uh, we do have uh, a lot of people in English, a lot of people in history, some scholars in foreign languages, particularly in Latin. We have a, a great medieval Latinist. And... And religious studies as well. So actually, somebody in architecture.
0: What what makes a great medieval Latinist? How do you determine the 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 great medieval Latinist from the from the (laughs) mediocre medieval Latinist?
1: I think the fact that they exist at all is great. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So that. I'll leave it at that. Okay. Okay.
0: <laughs> so let's talk about you because I mean I, I, I do want to get into this idea of the medieval mind and and w- uh, why it's relevant and what it is and, and mm-hmm. moving on to, to your books and exploring that holus bolus. But um, what attracted you to this to, to this field, and, and had you had you been when you were a small child, were you playing with knights or something like this? Was this something mm-hmm. that you you had you had always been fascinated by, or did you did you come to appreciate aspects of, of medieval mm-hmm. times, as it were?
1: I suppose growing up, I was fascinated by aspects of it, but I wouldn't have known to call them medieval. And I knew about King Arthur or the Once and Future King. I remember in fifth grade reading a collection of King Arthur stories from my elementary school library and thinking this stuff is great. Right. But I.
0: As most children yeah. do, one would think.
1: But I never thought this stuff is medieval. Right. And probably until I got to college. And my main one of my main goals in college was I wanted to study in England because I, I had never gone to England and I had watched uh, public television growing up and... So it was just something I had listened to the kinks. And it was just something I wanted to do, was go and have an English experience. Yeah, they were,
0: they were a medieval group as well,
1: I think, <laughs> kinks. So, so the, the only real programs my college offered that were possible to fit into my schedule were the theater program and a medieval and renaissance program. And I thought theater is just not going to work. I'll do this medieval thing and see if that's, if that's any fun. And I just kept doing it after that.
0: Is that often the way it's grouped? Is it often grouped as medieval and Renaissance? Because presumably they're 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 quite different depending on on where you're mm-hmm. studying and and so forth.
1: That's that's the way they're usually grouped. Uh, they they usually do fall together. Uh, some people who specialize in the really early Middle Ages will naturally look back towards the Roman Empire, but normally, if you're a medievalist, you're either looking back to Rome or you're looking forward to the Renaissance. Right. Um, there's a debate going on in historiography now, historical writing, which is probably of no interest anyone outside it, about how do we periodize things. And The term Renaissance has sort of gone out of fashion, and we talk now about modern history versus medieval and early modern history versus medieval.
0: So what are the dividing lines now? What are the new dividing lines?
1: Um, there's more or less the same as the old ones, I think. Italy is still a little bit ahead of the curve. They start the modern world about fourteen hundred, but usually the early modern is going to be fifteen hundred to the French Revolution. Somewhere. Okay. So the names have changed, but mm-hmm. but
0: but that that that's that's roughly it. Well, I wanted to say, and I and I had talked to you a little bit, or at least I had some communication with you about this idea that, for me, and and I'm guessing for a lot of people, because as I mentioned to you, my role is the uh, is the. Curious yet sadly ignorant fellow who goes around <laughs> trying to talk to people who are both curious and knowledgeable. Um, and and my sense of the medieval period is roughly that nothing really happened. You know, the, one gets a sense of, well, there was the the Romans and the Roman Empire, and then the Dark Ages came, and a bunch of people went into monasteries, and then they emerged roughly mm-hmm. a thousand years later, and interesting things started to happen with the Renaissance. I'm, I'm simplifying mm-hmm. a bit from my, <laughs> from my perspective. Um, uh, clearly, the story is much, much more complicated than that, as as all these stories are. Much more continuous than that. Much more interesting than that. Did you ever have? Uh, did you, did you ever have? Were you under similar false preconceptions when you were when you were younger? Perhaps when you were playing uh, mm-hmm. King Arthur games or going. Did, did, was was this an awakening for you to recognize? Oh my goodness! Look at all these fascinating things that these people are doing at this particular point in time. Uh,
1: I I didn't have the moment of revelation in, in that I. I have dismissed the Middle Ages as being unimportant. I think I I had heard of the the Dark Ages and knew that not much had happened in the Dark Ages. But I come from Oklahoma. I went to public school in Oklahoma. And there's a lot of wonderful things about going to public school in Oklahoma, but learning world history was not one of them. So we learned Oklahoma history and American history. And I really, going into college, I couldn't have told you when the Middle Ages happened or what they were. Okay. So I, I really, I, I had no idea. So once I started, I began to pick up on the idea, the realization that people thought nothing went on in the Middle Ages. And medievalists, particularly in the the 70s and 80s, I think medieval historians wrote with the intention of saying, look how interesting we are. Everybody thinks that the modern world is great, or nothing important happened before the French Revolution, but you know, we had a lot of interesting stuff going on that's very different and we're just as interesting and just as modern as as any of you are, right but um i I think there's been a, a sea change in that. I may be jumping ahead of, of go where There's, there's going no there's no, no plan okay. go ahead
0: jump jump um, away
1: <laughs> there's I think there has been a sea change since um the late nineties going into the going into the 21st century in that the kind of things we talk about as being interesting and characteristic of the Middle Ages, have started to come back in style. Hmm. I remember watching reports out of Israel during the Second Intifada when uh, the Israeli government sent tanks into Bethlehem and seeing tanks outside the Church of the Nativity, and I thought, my God, this is the Crusades happening again. And then I heard that some of the new government policy involved if a if a terrorist suicide bomber attacked, he should know that his family was going to pay the price after he died. And the notion of family responsibility for a crime committed, that's the feud mentality right out of the Middle Ages. Right.
0: Um, Not to mention George Bush actually using the word crusade. Mm-hmm. No,
1: I, I saw that happen live, and <laughs> I could see the word about to come out of his mouth. We're, come, we're urging the world to join us on this new, no, <laughs> no this new. Crusade, oh God, <laughs> he did it. Get <laughs> train wreck in slow motion. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah, that, Obviously post 9-11, after 9-11, the crusading mentality was back to right. on both sides. So, right. um, unfortunately, when I started studying medieval history, one of the great joys was it was not relevant and we could do whatever <laughs> we wanted and nobody cared, but suddenly we've got religious warfare and sex scandals in the Vatican and we're, <laughs> we're all modern again.
0: Well, it's a, a double-edged sword, I guess, mm-hmm. to uh, to make an, an image. Uh, um, but, so let's get back to some of your early work, um, mm-hmm. and the person you seem to specialize in is this Guibert of Nogent, mm-hmm. um, who struck me again. So I here I am reading these these, these books, the, 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 uh, his books, and and a book that you had written about Guibert of Nogent. And this is, again, somebody, sadly, I had never heard of before at all. Mm -hmm. Um, And what struck me as particularly curious and interesting is that he is, uh, it seems, he's somebody who wasn't particularly successful by the standards of the time at all, So, which makes him, it seems, quite one of the things that makes him actually very interesting. And, And according to what you had written, he's also somebody who was used by all sorts of different interest groups over the centuries to promulgate their particular views, almost as if uh, he was this uh, spokesperson who was brought out of the 12th century and, and, and uh, given to them. So maybe you can say, uh, well, please, go on about mm-hmm. Guibert. What, what interested you about him? Why were you interested in moving forwards um, and giving a deeper study of his work?
1: Mm-hmm. Um, he was some, somebody I had read when I was in college. First medieval history class I took included Guibert's autobiography, and it was a very strange book, as if you've looked at it, you yeah. will know. Yeah. And it's the kind of book that sticks with you, particularly because it was so difficult, and I felt like I just really didn't get that book. And I know it's important. Anytime I packed up medieval books to go somewhere, I would take that with me <laughs> and think, at this time, I'm going to figure out what's going on in this book. Yeah. So and How long did it take? Oh, I'm still not sure I have. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm still working with it. I've The... The key, as much as I found one, I discovered in graduate school, I had a professor, an advisor who was fairly eccentric in his interests, even by medieval history standards, Mm -hmm. and his primary focus, as much as he had one throughout his career, was biblical exegesis, so commentaries on the Bible verse by verse, which were produced throughout all the Middle Ages, and in order to make something I might be interested in mesh with his interests, I saw, oh, Guy has done all of these biblical commentaries and nobody seems to have worked with him. So that was my entree into it. I could say, here's something new, here's a, a text people have ignored, and it's connected to this person. People, at least in medieval history, have heard of If, if he's still not breakfast table conversation, he's, he is known within my world. Within your breakfast tables, as it were.
0: And were those easier to deal with than the Demonides and his the autobiography?
1: Oh. No, they're they're equally difficult, but in different <laughs> ways. I, part of what has made the Monodies, as as you use the correct title, which I, I'm very pleased with, oh. <laughs> um, well, it's I've I've done my best to bring that back into vogue. The part part of what makes that such an interesting book and what is, has made it fascinating to people in the 20th century and and even um, into the the current time is that he seems so crazy in it. In, the person who wrote about him, or who retranslated him in the '70s, was named John Benton, and he presented Guibert as here is the first certifiable neurotic in history, <laughs> and we can do a straight-up Freudian analysis on him. It's because of his mother. Uh, he desperately wanted to have sex with his mother, but he was a repressed homosexual, and he did he did all sorts of interesting things, which you just can't do with medieval people because they never open themselves up like that. They never. Uh, let you into their mental world. So his take on Guibert was fascinating, but it was not one I was wholly convinced by because I, like like a lot of people who have read any Freud or any psychoanalysis, have a sense that it's pretty specific to its historical moment. And the late 19th century has nothing to do with the 12th century, so it seemed like the tool of analysis was was not appropriate for the subject. So, but this wasn't, the, this wasn't the last guy, or, or rather maybe it was the last guy, but this certainly wasn't the first
0: person to, uh, from your perspective, take him out of context, right? This has happened mm-hmm. before. In, oh in yeah,
1: previously he, in the 19th century he was regarded as the first true Frenchman. <laughs> <That was laughs> crazy because, Freudian Frenchman. Yeah, <laughs> he has a lot of baggage. <laughs> okay. um, crazy Freudian, bigoted nationalist, Yeah, he's done it all. Um, that grew in part out of his... Chronicle grew mainly out of his Chronicle of the Crusade, in which he celebrates the virtues of aristocratic Frenchmen, and he describes them as a people beautiful, bountiful, and brilliant. Narrative. And, and yeah, it, well, I at think, least in English, anyway, I, yeah. I must admit, I, yeah. I probably gave the alliteration <laughs> to that translation. Um, but but he is very elegant in his own sort of uh, stentorian, awkward Latin style. Yeah. He 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 is a very eloquent writer. So I, I try to be true to that when I translate him. Right. But at any rate, he, he celebrated the achievement of the French people, and this caused 19th century French nationalists to really glom on him. He also wrote a very strange, very uncharacteristic for the Middle Ages book, which was an attack on relic cults and the veneration of saints' bones. And he attacked them on grounds which sound almost like they're taken straight out of the Lutheran playbook, that this leads to corruption, you know the dead should be allowed to rest in peace, we 're covering them in gold, um, where all sorts of superstitions have grown up around around these these abuses of piety, so he he writes about them in ways that sound completely out of step with his time, right. and perhaps because they were, he was a little out of step with his world, and that that does come through pretty clearly in in everything he wrote. So this was taken as a sign by the same people who celebrated his French nationalism as he's also the first great rationalist. He's the first great critical thinker produced in the Middle Ages. Um, moving further back in time still, he be, he was sort of a counter-Reformation hero precisely because he anticipated a lot of the Lutheran critiques of church abuses and he he was able to um, not put up a defense upon on behalf of the church, but to say he was an example of somebody saying, Look, we I recognize there's a problem, there are abuses, but that doesn't mean throw out the whole church. Right. So lots of groups have have found him a useful person. It's it is fascinating and even a little shocking that somebody who was the paragon of rationality and nationalism in the nineteenth century should come should become the symbol of the first great madman right, in the 20th right, the century. Off-
0: <laughs> <laughs> and an advocate for the Counter-Reformation, all yeah. this all <laughs> thrown in. But do, do you still, I mean, you said this presumably with a little bit of irony and playfulness that you're, you're still not sure and so forth. Do, you, do you, Are you still getting more out of his works as somebody whose your mm-hmm. PhD thesis was all about a particular view on... Mm -hmm. On him, you've you've written the introduction to the Monodies and on the relics of saints and so forth, and and, and Mm -hmm. this is a text which is obviously some. These are texts which which you are intimately familiar with. Do you do you reread them? Do you still get a sense of who is this guy and 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 what what does he actually
1: what, what is he saying here? I will, I will say, with some degree of satisfaction and happiness that after completing the translation, I did feel like I think I got him right in the book, basically. There's a lot more going on that I couldn't catch, but I do think I got to the core of him, which which I'm happy about. I don't think he would be displeased if he saw the book I had written about him.
0: And he is, as, as, as you say, he is, he really should be looked at as a product of his age, nonetheless, mm-hmm. r- as opposed to being having these constraints imposed from without as, as an advocate of the kind of Reformation at some level, or, or, or the first modern neurotic, or, or mm-hmm. what have you. So, in your view, are there other... Obviously, he, he had written all this down, mm-hmm. but would he have been, just to speculate, would he have been reasonably typical, you think? I mean, would there be Guybert's, uh uh, at every around mm-hmm. every corner, if if one happened to be walking around uh, France at that time, or or
1: yeah.
0: or, or other places yeah. in the medieval world, or, or or more common than than the the one isolated statistically significant data point that maybe mm-hmm. we're, we're using now,
1: there there probably were more of him. There were certainly more people like him than just Guibert, uh, but I don't think you'd be running into them around every corner. Right, and the the potential for somebody who can think such original and unusual thoughts, think outside the box, as we say today, is, is pretty small. There's a, a statistically small probability that such a person will exist, and then that such a person will exist at that time and have a platform to um, produce ideas from and to, to get them actually written down. That's smaller still. So what were some of these ideas? Tell us,
0: tell us about some of these thinking outside the box ideas. What, mm-hmm. How was he so different? What, what was so unique about his thoughts?
1: The, The big idea, which I I think I was the first person to really isolate, was that when he read the book of Genesis, which is the first book in the Bible, it starts out with the story of creation, and then after the flood, you get the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph at the end. Um, He was the first person who read that book and wrote a commentary on it as if it were one long, continuous narrative, Hmm. and that each each character in the book, each element in the book, was a symbol for Guibert and his system of thought for an aspect of the mind, an aspect of thought. And he does, again, I perhaps the Freudian thing is irresistible for anybody who reads them, but I, when, he, he divides the mind up into three parts. And they are kind of, not, they're not exactly the same, but they're sort of roughly like uh, id, ego, and superego. He divides it up into affection, will, and reason. And the book of Genesis, as he interprets it, is these three parts of the mind interacting. They're always in conflict with one another, but they're also growing. And reason, is, reason as a faculty is establishing itself with more security as time goes on. And then by the time Guibert gets to the story of Joseph, reason has blossomed into a, an entirely new mental faculty called intellect and this allows this single Christian mind, which he has whose life he has traced throughout the book of Genesis, it allows it suddenly to be able to communicate with God. And so effectively he's he's the first person to write a commentary like this, but he's also one of the first, if not the first person, to develop an abstract psychological system about how the brain ought to work and then to sort of apply it to his own world to his own life and say this is what spiritual progress and psychological progress looks like. My turn on the 20th century orthodoxy on Guibert was not he I'm not saying he's not a neurotic or he does not have some psychological difficulties, but we all do. But what what makes him unique is he's the first person to really think abstractly about how the mind works. So he developed a psychological system, applied it to his life, and out of that grew both this mammoth commentary on the book of Genesis and this extremely unusual autobiographical
0: tract. So he wasn't just the first certifiable neurotic, he was the first certifiable psychologist, perhaps. There we go. And there's, <laughs> there's a combination for you. What a shock. Um, <laughs>
1: <laughs> Those things never go together nowadays.
0: <laughs> um, what... Um, but he, nonetheless, despite all of this originality, and despite uh, th- despite the curiosities associated with his character, he d- does not seem to have been terribly successful by the standards of the day. So why why is that? Why wasn't he recognized as this original, creative, interesting uh,
1: mind? Mm-hmm. I think part of the reason was, uh, part of the reason was that his best ideas he wrote in the form of biblical commentary, which is not the most accessible form. He didn't write as comparable intellectual figures did treatises called On the Soul or On Free Will or something that said, here's my system. Right. So why didn't um, he do that? I don't know. Um, I think it probably had to do just with where his comfort zone was and his comfort zone as a medieval monk was the Bible and writing about the Bible.
0: But he was a bit ambitious, right? I mean, he mm-hmm. you, you would have you probably—you would have realized that other people were writing On the Soul and all these things, and mm-hmm. that's the way towards some sort of a claim within, the, within his world.
1: Mm-hmm. And he knew that as well from... Um, his own teacher, who was Saint Anselm, who was probably, arguably, the most brilliant thinker in the Middle Ages. I was taught in a philosophy course in college. Anselm was the last person to have an original idea. Really? But, mm-hmm. Well,
0: there you go. There's no point in the rest of us struggling. I
1: suppose. Pretty much no. <laughs> he proved God existed in a, a very short paragraph, and nobody's quite disproved him since then. Were you, were you told who the first person who had the origin,
0: uh, had an original idea was
1: uh, the the previous last person. I, I'm not actually <laughs> sure who that was. I've also heard all philosophy is a footnote on Plato, Plato and yeah, yeah, Aristotle. I but Whitehead said. said
0: okay. uh, I don't think the Aristotle. I think it was a footnote on Plato. A footnote but I on mean, Plato, there are,
1: I'm okay. sure there are Aristotelians who believe something very okay. comparable. But, um, okay, so that's that's curious. Mm-hmm. And and, and oh, there's another reason okay. why a, a much more personal reason why I think Guibert was not embraced by a wider audience, and that's because I think he just had a knack for annoying people. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Really. Uh, for example, his... Is that
0: out, out of fun or, or just by the way he was
1: writing? or, or... Uh, I think it probably was born of his own insecurities that he does seem to have been somebody who was jealous of other successful people, and when he had a chance to, to dig into them, he would. Um, he was somebody who did lack the courage of his convictions a lot of the time. So there was a point when a bishop who had plotted and orchestrated the murder of a knight was, after he had done this, was giving a sermon in a church, and he was essentially condemning the people who were on the side of the knight who had been murdered. And Guybert said, You know, this is ridiculous. Look at what he's doing, turning to the person sitting next to him. You know, he should be condemning the people who were responsible for the murder, but he's not. And then the bishop said, Would you like to share that with the rest of us, Guybert? Or <laughs> words to that effect. And Guybert said, No. <laughs> so when he had the chance to stand up, he didn't. The really intriguing one to me is his book on the cult of relics, because he wrote it as an attack on a neighboring monastery. Uh, The monastery is called Saint-Médard de Soissons. It's about 30 miles from where Guibert's church would have been, and he was attacking them for a particular relic, that is, they claimed to have a baby tooth of Christ. Mm -hmm. And Guibert heard about this, and he got very angry, and he decided to write a tract proving this could not be. And in the course of writing this tract, in the course of attacking the baby tooth of Christ, he said, "Let me tell you about a few other relics that are completely bogus. Let me tell you about some bad saints' lives that are faked." And on the one hand, as the 19th century celebratory, rational crowd said, "This is, for the in a large respect, this is good rational thought." You know, he is he is attacking the kind of things that we 19th century folk will, would attack as well. But in an immediate sense, he's attacking the sort of financial and cultural basis of authority that all of his neighboring abbots and churches enjoy. So
0: it's not going to make him terribly popular.
1: No. (laughs) And they're also the people who are going to be criticizing his ideas and who he would need to have on his side if he were going to make the case for himself as a great theologian. So nobody wanted to support him. He didn't have... um, He had alienated his natural allies. Mm. And that was just a deep personal failing born of his own insecurities i did ultimately find him to be a very sad person not so much neurotic but at the end of his life it was hard for me to think about him sitting in his monastery going blind thinking of everything he had wrote everything he had written and maybe starting to realize it was all going to come to naught and not feel not feel some empathy for him yeah.
0: the irony of course is that he did turn out to be very influential Mm -hmm. despite what he might have justifiably believed at the time as he was going blind Mm -hmm. in the monastery. So let's move on for you. So you've done this work Mm -hmm. um, and what motivated you to move towards a a deeper exploration of the Crusades in a particular way? You've gone from this intellectual historical Mm -hmm. uh, perspective of this figure and presumably other figures in in the area and his influence and so forth and and, and then you've, become, you've moved over to become a specialist in the First mm-hmm. Crusade. So how did that happen?
1: Uh, I'll say at the outset, I did not expect to write the book that I ended up writing. That I, I have published Armies of Heaven. That Up until about a year before it came out, that was not the book I saw it being. I was expecting. Up it. until a year before, probably. Really recently. Uh, I, I had written a, a very long academic book which had, a lo- I think, a lot of great storytelling in it and a lot of great sort of nuggets in the way that hopefully good academic books will do. I hope it was a good book, even though it, it hasn't appeared in any form yet. But the, the editor I was working with said, you know, you really should be thinking about doing this as a narrative. And we went back and forth on it a lot, and finally, partly due to pressure from her and partly due to me grudgingly admitting, you know, my editor may actually know what she's talking about. Mm. I decided I'll, I'll give it a try. And then I took all of the best pieces from that earlier book and strung them together in a chronological way and filled um, filled them out with further narrative. And I did find as I was putting it together chronologically I was seeing lots of things I had missed. So it, I think it turned out to be a much better book than it would have been otherwise. But
0: and did she suggest, in addition to it being uh, put in the form of a narrative, did she also suggest that it be written for a wider audience Was this, was this part of it, or, or, or was that always your intention to write something for a wider audience because this mm-hmm. is a book which is quite accessible to to anyone mm-hmm. you just certainly don 't have to be a specialist oh, in the Thank field. you for saying so I, wow.
1: I did try to write it in that way and When I started to write what was the academic book, I had it in my head that this is something that is accessible to a wider audience. So I didn't really know what a wider audience was when I started writing it. Um, I was writing a book which would have been entertaining to my colleagues, but would have been completely opaque to anyone outside the field. And I can imagine a lot of my colleagues would have said, you know, you should publish... More people should read this. This is entertaining, but nobody would have gotten it. So,
0: so it was through the workings of your editor uh, mm-hmm. effectively that it changed. But, but let's get back to the to the thesis, because the sure. thesis of the book is, is this, this primary role that apocalyptic thinking plays in, in the crusade. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess just before I turn it over to you, I want to ground this into my whole motivation and, and an, an excitement and intrigue, in fact, in talking to you, because... Perhaps I should have started this way, but, but uh, mm-hmm. the, through the power of editing, maybe we can, oh we can right. rearrange everything. <laughs> but uh, for me, the, the, the big question, the $64,000 question on the table, maybe it's $64 million now with inflation, but mm-hmm. uh, the, the large question is this notion of how relevant these people are. That is to mm-hmm. say, relevant perhaps is not the right word. How, um, how much do they embody this thing that we call the human condition? How much like us, are these people mm-hmm. who lived back in the 12th century, back in the 11th century, back, and so forth. Um, it, is there a sense uh, by which we can, we can somehow, uh, by appreciating them and what they did and what they thought, that we can learn from what it is that they've done, we can identify with them, we can somehow get a deeper appreciation of this aspect of the human condition, or are they so alien to us, these people who were mm-hmm. doing these horrible atrocities in the name of uh, whatever in the name of God that are walking across thousands of miles on these on these pilgrimage, these treks that end in this, this obscene amount of violence and the, this 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 wanton horror show that that comes on such a regular basis, are they so completely different from civilized man that we can just look at them as some sort of bizarre curiosity, as we would people you know, or entities in a zoo or some other species or something like that, mm-hmm. and and. Uh, as I was reading some of some of the earlier works, and as you were listening to you talk about Guibert and so forth, it seems as if it's it's curious because there are clearly resonances with people of all sorts of different ages as they read this guy and they say, oh yes, he's the spokesperson for our view. He's this spokesperson for our view over here. Um, and so when I when I look at something like the Crusades, that there's a tendency to say, notwithstanding whatever George Bush has said, notwithstanding the fact that there are tanks tanks in Bethlehem, wow, well, that's mm-hmm. really these people who are completely, you know, of a completely different mindset that doesn't particularly apply to us. And so, part of my meta theme in exploring this is trying mm-hmm. to get a sense of where, if anywhere, that line actually uh, exists. So that's a long rambling <laughs> um, preface that that doubtless should have ended in a question. Um. <laughs> <laughs> so, so now I'm going to go back to uh, to why you're interested in the uh, in the Crusades mm-hmm. and how and how this apocalyptic thinking actually developed.
1: Mm-hmm. Well. I'll where to begin with all of that?
0: Yeah, you see, this is the problem. Mm-hmm. See, what I should do is I should give these little short questions. This is the, mm-hmm. what you're supposed to do if you're a professional interviewer at UC. But I'm uh, a... <laughs> I'm, 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 uh, Talented is, amateur, as I uh, used to ta- say ta- on well, The adventure. Well, yes, I guess there's that. It's, it's a new format. It's a whole mm-hmm. new... It's a wild west out there. Okay. So, so even the rookies get a chance. Mm-hmm. So and we can edit this all out. So anyway, okay. back to you. Yeah,
1: talented amateur was a compliment, by the way, from the Avengers. Uh, John Steed, top professional. Emma Peel, talented amateur. I don't know if you ever oh, watched yeah, our yeah, show. Oh yeah, yeah, sure, okay. sure. Well, it's
0: again the Anglophile in you that, that's <laughs> coming to the
1: fore. The King's though. So. <laughs> <laughs> and it all led to the Crusades. <laughs> um, I, what I, I was, I was, I grew more and more dissatisfied with the way people were writing about the Crusade. Uh, my interest in it. I should add, as preface and in a way as self-defense, began pre-911, um, almost immediately so, in that my first grant application for research on the Crusades I submitted just before the deadline, which was September 1st, 2001. So I've... Um, and then 9-11 happened, and suddenly the, the change I was talking about earlier and how medieval history shifted from being... A curiosity from the past to becoming um, headlines happened, and I had proposed working on that subject. So that's when I got into it. Uh, I started out writing, though very skeptically, about the apocalyptic angle. Uh, And I also say this in a way as self-defense from anyone who might think I'm deliberately sensationalizing. When I went into the, the topic, I really thought the apocalypse is not that important. And the first paper I gave on it, also actually the second paper I gave on crusading, I gave at a conference in Tennessee. Although at the time I was living in New Mexico, and it was a paper on the the crusade preacher Peter the Hermit, who is one of the, the more fascinating characters to come out of this era. And I was trying, I was trying to contextualize him and say that this is um, this. This is important, but it's not the whole story, and we shouldn't exaggerate it too much. I was writing in response to another book at the time. So the, one of the leading crusade scholars, I'll, I'll leave him anonymous in this forum, but one of the leading crusade scholars in the world was the official commenter on the paper, and he said, um, in a wonderfully British style, um, I have to compliment Jay on this paper. Um, he accomplished something I had thought impossible previously, which is to make me think there might be some relevance to all of this. Well, there you go. <laughs> but of course, and then he went on to explain why there was not. not. <laughs> and I, I had a, an epiphany at that moment of, wow, these people really are scared of the apocalypse. They really don't want to confront it. So I, I, should, I should stay alert to it at the very least. And then with that mindset, as I read more and more crusade sources, I started noticing it's everywhere. The apocalypse is everywhere. You've just got to be alert to the vocabulary and to the structures. And the more I learned about medieval apocalyptic thought specifically, as opposed to sort of universal um, evangelical apocalyptic thought which exists today, the more I learned about the specific medieval context. It's it was not just everywhere; it was fundamental to the story. So I okay. I felt I began to feel like, and I feel like even more strongly today, I found what is the key to the crusade story, the key to how the crusade was read at the time it happened that's been missed by um, everyone for at least the last 100 years.
0: Let's back up and let's, let's assume that somebody knows very little, next mm-hmm. to nothing about the first crusade, period. Mm-hmm. So give us some historical background as to what actually happened, what sure. transpired, and, and, then, and then feed in your apocalyptic motivations. Okay,
1: The story usually begins in 1095, when Pope Urban II held a church council at Clermont, and his goal, his main goals were to church reform, very sort of bland medieval ecclesiastical goals, but at the end of the council he delivered a sermon about the need to liberate Jerusalem, which stirred up great excitement. I think it must have been a very choreographed event. He had arranged for people to come forward and agree to participate in a military expedition to save Jerusalem, uh, he had clearly arranged for a group of seamstresses with cloth crosses to emerge, and anybody who w- vowed to go would have a, a cross sewn onto his cloak.
0: Right there, in real time. Yeah,
1: right on the spot. Mm. Uh, so he he knew how to work a crowd. I think other people were preaching similar things at the same time, and it's, it's apparent to me, I think at this point you have to step back and be a little geopolitical, it's apparent that there was an increasing concern about what was going on in Jerusalem. Nobody in Europe... very, very few people could have put an exact description on what was happening, which was a new group of invaders from the Asian steppe, the Seljuk Turks, had marched into the Middle East, they were pushing back against the boundaries of Byzantium, and they had made it incredibly dangerous for pilgrims to travel to Jerusalem. So there was a lot of upheaval, there was a lot of uncertainty, and I think people beyond Urban were preaching this. So when Urban came up with this idea, it really took off. The idea as people understood it, and historians argue about what urban really meant, I'm not all that concerned, I'm more concerned with what people thought he meant because that's how they acted, Mm -hmm. the idea was that if you go to Jerusalem and fight Islam and recapture Jerusalem, which had been held by Muslims for over 400 years at this point, uh, you will have all of your sins forgiven and if you die you will go straight to heaven. Some people as well, I think, heard this and thought, you will have all your sins forgiven regardless of what you do for the rest of your life. But that's another story. So the message takes off. Armies start to organize. The first armies to leave are led by this character I was talking about earlier, Peter the Hermit. They are armies following Peter that are partly knight, partly aristocratic, but also include a lot of common people. They also were clearly an army who... Uh, I'm I'm giving away the story a little bit here, who were driven by apocalyptic ideas, in that people who heard Peter preach, the first thing they decided to do before going to Jerusalem was, let's kill Jews. Um, We've got to take care of the Jewish problem at home before we go to Jerusalem. And perhaps we can come back to that in a bit. Mm -hmm. Um, Peter's armies, for the most part, didn't make it as far as Constantinople, and most of the people who did, got a little ambitious in trying to take on the Seljuk Turks right away without further support, and most of them were wiped out. In the meantime, back in Europe, other more princely armies, better organized, better disciplined armies were organizing, and they started leaving in waves. We don't know how many people left. Estimates have run anywhere from 60,000 to 100,000 to 120,000. It, it was definitely, though, a mass movement. Right. They've covered about was it 2,000 miles from France to Jerusalem. All of them rendezvoused at Constantinople, and from there there were a series of uh, classic sieges. They conquered Nicaea and restored it to the Greek Empire. Eventually they arrived at Antioch, and after a grueling eight-month siege, captured it. M- marching down through um, Syria and Lebanon, they eventually reached Jerusalem. And on July 15, 1099, captured the city uh, um, by storming the city. And once they uh, broke it through the walls, got into the city, a general massacre ensued. We don't know how many people were killed the first day, but it at least numbered in the hundreds and probably up into the thousands. The eyewitness participants said that the streets were running ankle deep in blood. And then people who heard that story immediately began to elevate it and say, no, the blood was shin-deep, it was knee-deep, it was running in rivers with arms and torsos and legs and hands being carried along by the currents. Um, so there was one of the things which makes that the descriptions of the Battle of Jerusalem so disturbing, it's not just that they're incredibly violent, it's that the people who were involved liked to celebrate how violent they were, mm-hmm. and they really liked to as it were, imaginatively splash around in the blood and say, you know, look what we did. Um, So Jerusalem was captured. On the second day, a large group of prisoners who had surrendered were um, summarily executed by a crowd, which caused some consternation within the army because the person who had been holding them prisoner, who's a warrior named Tancred, he had decided he was going to ransom them, but all of his people had been killed. So then after Another day of debate, it was decided the only fair thing to do was to kill everyone who had survived. So the, almost the entire population of Jerusalem was killed. The only people who were not seemed to have been folks who had been ransomed on the first day by another count, and they'd gotten out of the city before the policy of complete destruction had been put in place. Um, this was, as far as medieval Europe was concerned, a wholly unprecedented event. Historians of the last 30 to 40 to 50 years have always been writing about Jerusalem as if it were the application of the usual rules of warfare. These were the understood rules of combat in the Middle Ages. If a city, if you lay siege to a city and it surrendered, you would spare the garrison. If it did not surrender and you took it by force, then everybody's life and property was forfeit. My response to that, what I realized the more I thought about it, was that that may have been the understood rules of warfare in Europe, but they were never applied. Hmm. And I have asked people, "Can you give me an, an example, example of when I'm this right. has happened?" and and I've never gotten one. So, from our perspective, it seems horrific. And this is what I think historians have been missing: from the perspective of the people at the time, it seemed horrific. In the same way that it seemed um, marvelous, it was yeah. miraculous and um, miraculous and terrifying in the way that the wrath of God. Probably, typically, is for those who have experienced it. But there was this,
0: uh, as you were saying, by some of the chroniclers, there was a sense of, of pride, presumably, that they were they were chosen by God. They were the select. They were uh, wreaking uh, mm-hmm. divine justice and so forth themselves, mm-hmm. uh, wreaking divine havoc, wreaking, wreaking something anyway. <laughs> <laughs> um, and and so let so let's get back to this, the motivation of this, just logistically, the, this notion that a hundred thousand people could could be walking uh, 2,000 miles in a stream. I mean, what would motivate somebody to do this? I mean, Mm -hmm. and and my understanding is that that previously people, of course, it wasn't considered the first crusade. It was considered, because one doesn't consider the first, the First World War was also not considered the First World War Mm -hmm. at the time.
1: I Um, remember my junior high teacher teaching me about that, and he had the wonderful line. It's the only thing I remember from that class. He said, you don't, I wouldn't walk around saying, this is my first wife, <laughs> exactly. so yeah, it was just it was just the war, <laughs> um,
0: and 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 previously people thought that, uh, what what was the standard what was the standard historical justification for why somebody would would leave their uh, their wife their family uh, their 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 life as it were and, mm-hmm. and make this make this arduous uh, unprecedented journey. Mm-hmm. I, th-
1: well, I I think. If you go back really early in history, there would have to be a sense of this is, I I think there may have even been a sense of we should celebrate this as a great expansion of Christianity or a great expansion of European values. Um, Getting into the 20th century, I think in order to cope with it, historians read it as is now our instinctive human impulse to say, well, it must have been about money. You know, really? It must have been greed, yeah. They because... just wanted
0: it for the plunder, that's all. They'd mm-hmm. be willing to do that. That's a bit far-fetched. It's a
1: bit it? far-fetched. Uh, it got a little bit of intellectual support from what was the dominant trend in French history in the, the post-World War um, historical schools in France, the Annales School, which was to look at everything in terms of economics. And the leading historian of France in the last 50 years was a writer named Georges Duby, And Duby came up with this beautiful model which really explains everything in history. But once you start to pick at it, it all falls apart. But it it is gorgeous in in how much it can cope with. And it's something that I'm sure a lot of people who are listening to this will have heard. If you've taken Western Civ, you've probably heard it. Not necessarily attributed to any one thinker, but it is that in the 11th and 12th century, due to changes in inheritance custom, Europeans developed primogeniture. The oldest son would inherit everything and the younger sons would either go into the church or they would be kept in reserve in case the oldest son died. And out of this this desire to protect the patrimony, to protect the family estate, hold it all together and only give it to one son, well, there were enormous consequences. And as Duby writes about it, this is where knighthood comes from. This is where the image of the chivalric knight, the knight errant, comes from. Because a knight errant is somebody wandering around looking for adventure because he doesn't have his own castle. He wants to get settled. And because of primogeniture, suddenly you have a lot of unsettled knights, people who have no hope of inheritance, who are hoping to find the eligible lady who has a castle who they can marry. So the psychological impulse behind chivalry grows out of inheritance practices. And in the course of making this argument, in one of his articles, Duby observes in a very offhanded fashion, which somehow makes the idea all the more compelling, the connection of this mentality with the urge to go on crusade barely requires mention.
0: Oh, well, it follows, <laughs> mm-hmm. it, it follows naturally. Mm-hmm. They say.
1: And then you can fill in the blanks and you feel like it's your idea and you're attached to it now, I guess. But the, the idea is, as you will have guessed by now, there was no land to give away in Europe, so let's go to the Middle East where there's lots of land.
0: But uh, mm-hmm. the, again, the far-fetched is actually a bit of an understatement, it seems to mm-hmm. me. If, if one, one tries to imagine what it would be like for, for somebody living in the year 1095... Mm-hmm. Um, and there's no precedent there are no other crusades There's not, no movement like this has ever happened before um, sure there, there's been internecine warfare there's been this, there's been that but uh, nothing of the order, nothing anywhere close to what actually transpired afterwards mm-hmm. and to imagine that huge numbers massive numbers of people would somehow find themselves swept up in, in, this, in this unprecedented movement is uh, requires some sort of explanation it seems mm-hmm.
1: to me well, and you're clearly preaching to the choir on that one. I'm That's trying to
0: stimulate you to tell me what you think have right. explanation in. See, this is <laughs> my new style me, of not rambling okay. on for 20 minutes before but let I give pass you
1: my, over. <laughs> Let me give you another explanation I don't believe in. Okay. And then we'll, we'll gradually work to the one I do believe in. Okay. Um, I, there are parts of this explanation work, which is in the Middle Ages, the most popular, the most emotionally satisfying form of religious devotion was pilgrimage. The great pilgrimage site was Jerusalem and the desire to go to Jerusalem, maybe not by itself, but it's, it's a key component in the story. Um, that usually is paired by what is the dominant school of historical thought now with another urge, which is the urge to perform penance. And the read on this is that knights, by the nature of their profession, rack up a lot of sins. And there was no, they would they would rack up so many sins that it was impossible to ever work them off in your lifetime. So this was a a constant cause of worry for people. And they needed some sort of spectacular and original form of penance in order to redeem their souls, and that's what the Crusade was. Not only was it an unprecedented way to redeem one's soul, but it was a way that allowed them to attain that point, salvation, through the means of what had previously been their sin i.e. violence and killing right so uh, the first crusade gave them a way out gave their gave their souls a way out to prove this point the the most common method has been to appeal to what's known as charter evidence and charters are legal documents drawn up usually between aristocrats and churches frequently monasteries monasteries were the great record keepers so that's mm-hmm. where we can turn to and the Charters, which record the, record a lot of these agreements, say they, they will tell what's being what the land is. They'll also say what the knight is planning to do. And most of the knights say, I'm on the journey to Jerusalem. And that evidence, for me, has been very helpful because there remains some doubt as to how fixed the goal of the first crusade was. But we have a lot of evidence from 1095, 1096, of people saying, I'm going to Jerusalem. That's where they were going. Mm-hmm. But then they also will have a motivation, um, a motivation clause, which will say, uh, feeling burdened down by the great weight of sins and wanting to make amends or language to that effect, I'm giving this land to uh, a church so they will pray for me. And again, Crusade historians have been able to point to those passages and say, look how consistently they say these things. Arguing against me, they would say, look, none of them say... I'm going to create the end of the world. None of them talk about apocalyptic motives. They only talk about the desire to perform penance for their sins. So um, it presents a pretty compelling case. And I will add, when I started working on the crusade, I was convinced this was more or less right, and this was all we needed. I started to develop my suspicions, and I'll, I'll do the Go job for. of arguing against, against that proposition for you here. For. When I started reading, when I actually sat down with some of these collections of charters, and I noticed that, yes, most of the ones that mention the Crusades have this passage in it, but I could go back to the year 1000 or even to 950 and find exactly the same motivation. Um, and it goes on after the Crusade. In other words, every time anybody gave land away... It's a standard said, clause. Yeah, it's a standard clause. It's a stand- it's- oh,
0: that's what I was going to say when I, mm-hmm. when I was listening to this. I mean, it seems like almost a legalese document. You don't expect personal motivations to be associated with a standard clause legalese mm-hmm. document. Yeah,
1: they don't provide windows into your soul. I right. think when I, um, when I first bought a house in New Mexico, I, I had to sign a long contract which was, you know, this was the form you follow. It's, it's, um, it's, as far as I know, it's still legal. Um, it's still legal doctrine for the neighborhood I was buying into. Uh, it, it included clauses saying that I, I wouldn't allow an African American or an Asian person to live in my house unless they were servants. But you know, it's in the contract. <laughs> Nobody has the energy to take it out at this point. But it doesn't really express reality in any way. Nor, nor your personal motivation. No, certainly so not. <laughs> okay. So, so yeah. The, so there are problems with that type of evidence. Now, what what I started noticing, I, I think the charters which are really interesting are the ones that break form, where they actually don't say I'm doing this for the same reason everybody has done everything for the last hundred years, and. There are at least a handful that do this, and those seem to me the cases where knights saying, "No, this is what I want you to say. This is what my motive is. Make sure you get this down." And they are things like, "I'm doing this to wipe the evil Saracens off the face of the earth." And you know that sounds like a knight talking to me, right. um, And I also can't help but notice anytime I see knights in other, other walks of life, they're frankly not all that put out at the thought of going to hell. They don't let excommunications bother them that much. The king of France was excommunicated at the time of the First Crusade, and he just went on with his life. Um, So I don't think knights were as distressed as this school of thought makes them at the thought that they had sins that needed to be worked off.
0: And it wasn't just knights who went. Of course, knights Mm -hmm. went, but the knights weren't the only people who went. Mm -hmm. No.
1: Clerics went. As I said earlier, commoners went. Um, Women went. Uh, we know a few nuns went as well. They, as we euphemistically call it today, had camp followers um, going behind them, and that was a cause for much consternation among the clerics, where we've got to get the harlots away from the knights because they're causing the knights to sin and God is not favoring us. So it, it would have been a, a real cross-section of humanity going on crusade. Didn't Peter
0: the hermit have all sorts of... Uh, wasn't, he, wasn't he big on he having was, all sorts of prostitutes that were coming?
1: He was famous for redeeming prostitutes. That was part of his mission. Right. As before, he became a crusade leader, and he was he was surrounded by uh, redeemed harlots. I think he was, as he did in so many other aspects of his life, he was trying to imitate Christ, and he had the example of Mary Magdalene in mind. That this is what this is what a Christ-like person does. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs>
0: more more fodder for the editing room. <laughs> we need to take a break for yeah. a while? No, 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 no. it's fine. It's just something came into my throat. Okay. So um, skepticism as to what motivated these people, mm-hmm. um, a, a few possible hypotheses that we are, mm-hmm. that you rather um, have good reason to be skeptical of, mm-hmm. notwithstanding the fact that you were convinced of them before.
1: Mm-hmm. And then you start moving in another direction. Mm-hmm. And then as I, I read the Chronicle narratives, as I said, I started to see a lot of this apocalyptic language. It was striking that Guibert used it, and this was sort of my entree into thinking about the question, is that Guibert, when he wrote about the Crusade, became just ecstatically apocalyptic about what was going on. Hmm. Uh, Look at what the passages I was referring to earlier about his great French pride, he would say, not not just look at what we have done, but we are fulfilling God's plan. And in those same passages he would talk about how now there's a Christian king in Jerusalem and can we doubt that one day it will rule the world. Uh, so he, he, he infused it with a real sort of apocalyptic ecstasy. He included a long um, commentary on the prophet Zechariah showing how prophecy of the end times was being fulfilled in his days. He, when he imagined what the Pope said at the Council of Claremont, he made it very apocalyptic. Hmm. So it was all over. What's striking about that with Guybert is it's nowhere else in anything he, he had written. And I had, in order to write that book, slogged through all of his writing. So it wasn't as if he was he was a perpetual apocalyptic thinker. Mm-hmm. So,
0: so that, that, that made you suspect that there was really something mm-hmm. to this. It wasn't just him harping on his own same old theme. Exactly. The same drum.
1: And even when he, the, one of the few times he mentions it, he, he has a little pamphlet on how to give a proper sermon. And Unsurprisingly, from what I said about him earlier, he says you really need to focus on sort of the spiritual, psychological level. You need to make people feel bad about where they are, make them want to change. But he says one level of preaching is to talk about the end of the world, talk about the apocalypse and last judgment, but that does no good. It's a useless way of preaching because Mm -hmm. nobody... Uh, it's, it's very interesting. He kind of gets into deterrence theory, which has to do, it could be used in modern criminal justice or for discussions about the death penalty. He says, you know, threats of punishment don't prevent crimes. Thieves get hanged, but they still steal. It's, you know, the urge to sin will overcome fear of future punishment. So let's not even think about that. So suddenly this person who has said, let's not talk about last judgment and end things um, makes it crucial to his depiction of what the crusade was. He got really excited about it, Um, and other people did as well. So it was, um, as an intellectual theme, it worked for all of the writers.
0: So how did it come about? And so so go right back to the biblical text of the the apocalypse. Give Mm -hmm. us some sense as to what is actually said there, Mm -hmm. and then uh, give me some sense as to how somehow the conditions of the time enabled that to come to the forefront and serve as motivation for people to to go on the Mm -hmm. crusade, in your
1: view. Mm-hmm. The the Apocalypse is one of the most difficult and dangerous books in the Bible. It's one that... there there was a tradition in the Middle Ages that it was one of the books that you shouldn't read until you turned 30 because there, were just, there was just too much in it that could lead you down bad paths. It was, at the time the Bible was put together, famously the most controversial book, the last one to be included in the canon, again, just because there are things in it that make people uncomfortable. I sometimes Teach a class on apocalyptic thought, and that's the first thing we read. We read in it, and students are always, even students who have grown up in highly religious environments, are always a little surprised to see what's in there.
0: Is there, is there a is there an age requirement to that? Do they have to
1: be thirty? Before they <laughs> no, I, it? I, I allow younger people to do it. <laughs> okay. um, don't don't tell anyone an authority. <laughs> okay. So um, it's it has a lot of very intense imagery. There are illustrated apocalypses from the Middle Ages and. There, the illustrated apocalypses, I, I should say apocalypse is the Greek word for revelation. So when I say apocalypse in this sense, I'm talking about the last book of the Bible, not mm-hmm. just the final conflicts in human history or what have you. Uh, the illustrated apocalypses, when the artists try to imagine what a seven-headed dragon with 10 horns look like, looks like, or what a lamb covered in eyes looks like, they're, um, well, to, to use a slightly risky word, it's trippy. Um, you, you do get a sense that, you know, well, somebody was definitely in an altered mental state when he was imagining these things. Right. So um, it, it's it's a very powerful abstract book. The, the imagery never quite comes together, but that's what makes it, um, at the same time, a beautiful work, one you can think about constantly. Um, in the course of the apocalypse, there are Well, of course, there are four horsemen who bring plagues and all sorts of trouble to the earth. There are seven angels sounding seven trumpets, seven angels breaking seven seals. Um, A dragon, the the seven-headed dragon, appears. There's a whore of Babylon. There's a beast of the earth. And gradually it becomes a story of conflict, Um, a, a story of conflict between good and evil with all of these exotic beasts, generally on the side of Satan. And at the end of the, in the last battle, a Christ figure appears on a white horse. Uh, he imprisons the the dragon in the pits of hell. He inaugurates a thousand-year period of peace on earth. And then there's one more battle before heaven comes down from the sky and um, history is brought to an end. So the... In the overall structure of the Bible, you begin with creation and you end with the end of the world. So the Bible is a history of everything that has ever happened or ever will happen. And Christian thinkers, I think throughout time, have been intrigued by this and have tried to find clues in it for when the world is going to end, what will the end of the world look like. Uh, It's a dicey proposition from a Christian perspective, because Christ tells his apostles nobody knows the hour or the day, not even the angels, only the Father knows it. So you can't really speculate on when it will happen. In that same passage, however, Christ says, here are some things to look for. Um, And he says war, rumor of war, uh, disease, uh, earthquakes, signs in the sky, the standard litany of apocalyptic signs, most of which then reappear in the book of Revelation. he says, this is, when you see these signs, it's like when you see fig trees about to sprout. When you see that happens, you know the figs are coming. When you see these things, you know the end of time is coming. So on the one hand, don't speculate about the day, but then here are the signs. Now, leaping forward in time, the book of Apocalypse is about a war that's fought for the city, for the city of God, which is Jerusalem. The crusade is a war that's fought for Jerusalem. Uh, you can't really think in those terms you can 't think about what revelation is and what the crusade was and not see the obvious parallel right. um, it's it's pretty straightforward uh, this was also a time at which there was a lot of apocalyptic speculation in circulation uh, famously controversially at the turn of the millennium the year one thousand the year thousand thirty three there were um, there there was a lot of on the ground con- concerns or Perhaps a better way to express it is hopes that the world was going to end, that great things were afoot. Um, Those were disappointed, but the ideas, I think, were in circulation. There were also, um, and and this is what what really made, another thing that really made me think about apocalypticism and the Crusade. I always say this is what it is, as if there were one thing, but there were many. Um, The Crusade manuscripts frequently circulate with prophecies attached to them about the end of the world. And there are three common ones from the Middle Ages. There is the, um, what's known as the Tiburtine Sibyl, which is a prophecy that pretends to have been written in a time before Caesar, when one of the sibyls um, delivers a prophecy in the presence of Romans and Jews and says, this is how history is going to unfold. And in its 11th century form, it includes a battle against the Ishmaelites for Jerusalem. The Ishmaelites is shorthand for Saracens because they're the descendants of Abraham's Abraham's son, Ishmael. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's another one called Pseudo-Methodius which pretended to be a prophecy written in the third century when in fact it was written in the seventh century at a time when Islam had first appeared and Muslim armies were attacking Constantinople and it looked like the Byzantine Empire might fall. And as a way of perhaps comforting people Somebody wrote a prophetic text, as I say, pretending to be 300 years old, which made it really shockingly accurate that it saw Islam coming. (laughs) So it's like, yeah, we got to take this thing seriously. (laughs) And then it said, don't worry, this is not the last battle, but here's how it's setting the stage for the last battle. Mm -hmm. Um, And again, it's about warfare in Jerusalem. An emperor is going to go to Jerusalem, and the last battles will be fought there. Antichrist will appear there. And then there's also a book called On the Life of Antichrist, written as if it were a a biography of Antichrist, who had not yet lived, but said, we've got enough information to say this is how his life is going to turn out. And once again, it said, um, at this point, it's not a Byzantine emperor, it's rather a king of France is going to go to Jerusalem and have himself crowned emperor there. He'll fight a battle against Muslims, he'll lay his crown down, and Antichrist will appear. Wildly, Wildly popular texts far more, probably the bestsellers of the time, were all about war in Jerusalem and how war against specifically Muslims in Jerusalem was going to inaugurate in the last days. Now, one of the criticisms which I have come under from a few people for pressing this idea as much as I do as well, aren't those just churchmen's ideas? Aren't those just theological ideas? um, To which I have to respond. They are churchmen's ideas, but they're pretty appealing to warriors, because what you're saying is the key players in God's plan are the fighters. Right. This is a warriors' apocalypse, and it's going to happen. It's going to happen in Jerusalem. Come on, warriors, let's go fight in Jerusalem against not Islam, because they've never heard the word Islam. A few of them may have heard about Muslims. If they were hanging out in the south of Spain, they would say, "Let's fight against Saracens." And Saracens, in the understanding of medieval Christians, were the bastard children of Abraham. They were people, and this is where medieval people said the word came from. They're completely wrong, but they said, um, Saracen isn't, they call themselves Saracen because they want to pretend they were born of Sarah, Abraham's real wife. Mm. They were not born from, they, they want to deny that they were born from Hagar. Um, Who was his um, his wife's handmaid? Yeah. So we should never call. We shouldn't even dignify them with the term Saracen. We should call them Hagarites. So Mm -hmm. a very dimly understood enemy who embodied everything that um, that Christ stood for, and who were known to be directly connected to Antichrist. So add all that up, and it's like this is clear to me. Um, If you're if you're selling this case, this is going to be how you make it appeal to warriors. It's interesting, as you were you were talking
0: earlier about um, a contrary view, uh, which is that the knights went there because they were worried about uh, they were worried about being absolved of their sins, and uh, they wanted to uh, they they wanted to have some effectively perpetual indulgence and so forth that they could get to to, mm-hmm. to achieve heaven. And then you said, well, in my experience, many of the knights weren't overwhelmingly concerned with this notion of being excommunicated or, or what have you. It seems these things aren't necessarily mutually exclusive. I mean, it seems mm-hmm. it seems uh, if I'm a knight, I could be motivated at the time, I could be motivated by, or even a knight today, but anyway, <laughs> if, I, <laughs> if I was a knight at the time, mm-hmm. I could be motivated by these apocalyptic scenarios, by the mm-hmm. sense that I was... Uh, by participating i would be involving myself and my very much needed military skills Mm -hmm. in in part of some extremely essential overarching divide plan and at the same time feel that by doing so i would be absolving myself of any sins that i Mm -hmm. had created it seems like one can marry these two without any problem whatsoever the very fact that some people may have been motivated to uh, to somehow absolve themselves of their, uh, of their sins does not in any way preclude the possibility that they they were sympathetic to this apocalyptic or believed fully in this apocalyptic notion.
1: Mm-hmm. So yeah, I think that's a very good way to put it. The two ideas work together rather than against one another.
0: Yeah. So so let's 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 talk about what actually happened,
1: and this is this is
0: fascinating for me. So so the the thesis is that a, a primary v primary motivation for all of this is this. Is this groundswell of belief that somehow gets generated, either deliberately or or just uh, uh, just in some some in the air somehow? It, mm-hmm. it, it towards this notion that we are living in the end of days. This the apocalypse mm-hmm. is here, and it is our obligation. It is our opportunity to mm-hmm. hasten the end of history mm-hmm. by uh, taking over Jerusalem and by resurrecting it and christ or not resurrecting it, but by by mm-hmm. uh, re- Putting Jerusalem back in Christian hands. Mm-hmm. Um, and then this actually happens from mm-hmm. a militaristic perspective. Jerusalem is in Christian hands. And then what, what strikes me as so astounding uh, is, is that um, many people believe, notwithstanding the fact that Christ doesn't appear and all the rest of this, many people believe that they have actually, uh, the apocalypse has actually happened, even mm-hmm. well after this, according to your. your Mm-hmm. Your your theory. So maybe you can talk a little bit about that.
1: Yeah, I think it would have been so much easier for everyone to live with if they had just lost, <laughs> because <laughs> Christianity is a great religion for losing. You think like, well, you know, the, the the founder of Christianity got crucified. We Christians like to end their lives gloriously. Martyrs get killed and they go to heaven. Um, Christianity is a it's a great religion for failing and thinking, well, we'll do better next time. We weren't quite up to the we weren't quite up to the moral standards we needed to be at. Uh, but this this is the one time there was an apocalyptic movement where a, an apocalyptic event was expected, and it happened. The streets in Jerusalem did run with blood. The anti-Christian enemy was wiped out. There was a final battle between the Frankish Christian warriors and warriors from Egypt who were known by or Egypt was, was rather known by the shorthand term in the medieval West as Babylon. You know, Jerusalem versus Babylon, that's, that's the apocalyptic scenario. So for once, they expected an apocalypse, and they got it. And then what do you do with it after that? Um, it's apparent that, well, obviously Christ did not come. I think reactions to this were varied. Some people thought, well, and I'm thinking in particular of a, a writer from southern France who was very invested in the idea that this was when Christ was going to remake the world in a more perfect image. I I think from his viewpoint, we came really close, but ultimately we failed to do a few of the things necessary to complete the process. But it could be completed soon. Um, I think the gut reaction from a lot of the participants in it at the time, a lot of the other warriors who who weren't quite so moved by a sense of guilt was, well, we've set the stage. Um, we have all but wiped out the enemy, and there, there is one more battle yet to happen, but you know we're on the verge of that happening. Right. Uh, one of the people I have been most interested in is, of all things, an encyclopedist. And he wrote um, an encyclopedic book called The Liber Floridus, in which he includes all sorts of diagrams for world history most of which in, end up leading to the Crusade, and that's his climactic moment. Uh, he also included a an analytic chart of the rest of history, how it was all going to turn out. And um, he included well, he he included events right up to the end of his end of his life, or the end of the time he was making entries. But he left blank spots for future years, and the last year he had listed was twelve ninety one. And uh, when I saw that, I, I was immediately taken aback because uh, 1291 was the year Ocker fell and the Crusader states ended. And I thought, wow, he got it right. <laughs> um, this is really interesting. But then, as I, I, obviously that was not it. Um, but it, I eventually, in part due to the help from a graduate student here named Jeff Martin who sort of prodded me in this direction from a paper he was working on, I realized that 1290, 1290 days is one of the key numbers in the book of Daniel, and there was a, okay. a belief that the apocalypse might happen in the year 1290. Some prophets, as 1290 approached, thought this is the year. So I think he may have thought, okay, we've set the groundwork, and then the final events. History could go as lo- on as long as 1290, but we are getting to the end. Uh, one of the things about introducing... Excuse me, sorry. Uh, introducing <coughs> One more time. All right. Introducing an apocalyptic language into medieval history, there's we we have trouble approaching it. I think because we are a, a post-nuclear generation where we've had we've had a very nice scientific explanation for how the apocalypse is going to happen, and that's uh, you know, nuclear war. Um, I might, might might happen. Might happen. Yeah. Um, well, I, as I mentioned earlier, I grew up in Oklahoma, and we were sure it was going to happen. Okay. <laughs> um, I I still like to listen to old an old country song called The Great Atomic Power where Jesus is appearing in the mushroom cloud after the Russians dropped the bomb and calling his people home. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not familiar with that one. But, okay. uh, it, it's, a, it's a great song. I, I'm sure. Yeah. I, um, <laughs> so there, we, we've had a sense, though, that this can explain what all that image about fire coming from the sky is, what it all means. Um, and we also have had a sense, as you would, with the idea of, of a nuclear holocaust that this is a pretty scary thing. So we tend to, any time we think of the apocalypse, we think it's necessarily something to inspire fear and terror in the people who are experiencing it. But in the context of the Middle Ages where they don't have these scientific explanations, it's something that's kind of cool, and it's something that's exciting. It's, hmm. it's not the the end of history which we must fear, but it's the climax of history in which we might have the opportunity to participate, if we're lucky. And um, I I think that's... That is you know, how they viewed it. They had participated in it. They had set the stage. The world might very well have ended. They might have taken care of all their business, and now it was just waiting. It was just a matter of waiting for Christ to appear. But regardless, um, apocalyptic language was just a way of thinking about history. It was what history's capstone was going to be, and any time you set out to make history, that's what you were trying to make, was advancing God's plan for salvation, getting closer to that final apocalypse.
0: When did it when did it start dying away? So these guys mm-hmm. go, they're successful, mm-hmm. uh, they they restore Christianity in Jerusalem, and there's a sense that well maybe we're really on our way. We don't really know. Maybe things maybe any mm-hmm. day now, mm-hmm. uh, Christ is going to appear, and we're we're at the end. And and when did people start getting a sense of well actually that's probably not going to
1: mm-hmm. not going to happen? I I think in the Middle East in the Crusader states that were established in the aftermath of the Crusades, it. That sense of disillusionment had to set in pretty quickly, and it was almost a matter of survival that you can 't go on living with an apocalyptic mindset and thinking that the people around you are all are all the limbs of Antichrist and survive very long so i I think adaptation to the new reality must have happened right. pretty quickly there in europe it it survived much longer and in Varying circles. I think it went on at least until I think until the 1120s. There were people who still looked at the First Crusade as the great apocalyptic moment. Hmm. Um, by by the 1120s, people were pull, people had pulled back from it. I think that's my sense. With Guibert, it certainly had happened by the end of his life. And again, this was one of my clues into his mindset on this in his early commentary on Genesis. Anytime he mentioned tents, and tents get mentioned all the time in the Bible. The Latin word for tent is tabernacle, so anytime you read about a tabernacle, it's a tent. Anytime tent got mentioned in his early commentaries, Guibert would say, tents are things that we associate with pilgrims and knights. And here are all the virtuous associations that leads us to with this passage. Um, pilgrims and knights are a description of crusaders or pilgrim knights. He wrote that stuff in the 1070s, 1080s, 1090s, um, possibly during the First Crusade, but not, uh, not after. At the end of his life, in the 1120s, he did a, a new set of commentaries, and any time the word tent came up, he would say, tents are associated with pilgrims and knights, therefore they indicate instability, fickleness, and violence. So they'd taken on all these negative connotations. Right. So I think by the end of his life, he, he, he had turned on them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that probably also had a lot to do with the fact that he actually had to live with crusaders who had come back. <laughs> and he had to say, these are the guys I was idolizing. Um, and, and they were really nasty people. Yeah. Uh, with other people, it's hard to say. By the time the Second Crusade got underway in 1145, 1146, um, I don't know how... How exactly? I'm still not how, sure how exactly they viewed the First Crusade, but one of the leaders of the Second Crusade, who was King Louis VII of France, let it be known that he might be the last world emperor leading the troops off for the last battle against Antichrist. So the prophecies were getting extended, but the way they were being extended was, okay, false alarm on the last one, but... Right,
0: like time to crank up the rhetoric. We're still again.
1: moving in that direction. Yeah.
0: So... Um, Let's turn a little bit to the the reception of this book. So you come out with this book, you have Mm -hmm. an interpretation which is different from uh, many aspects of the standard interpretation, which which is insofar as uh, the motivations for the crusaders are the standard line being they're not terribly motivated by anything other than penance and piety and so forth. Mm -hmm. And now you're saying, no, no, a prime, the prime motivation is this apocalyptic scenario. Um, And how is this received... By by the by the community of scholars in, in mm-hmm. the medieval world. What what is um, the sense?
1: Well, reaction has been mixed so far. Um, I I have gotten a lot of positive feedback from colleagues who are crusade specialists and non crusade specialists. Um, and the the crusade specialists, obviously, I've been very very pleased that that they think I'm not completely crazy in what I'm saying. Um, the do they think you're a little bit crazy? I mean, just getting back I to think, this
0: whole Guibert images mm-hmm. are, are you just yeah. a little a little you too, too much emphasis yeah. on this I, or,
1: or I might be like Guibert carping at all the neighboring churches and <laughs> turning them against me. Um I've I I do think all writing is to a degree autobiographical even if we do not realize it. So um uh, well I I'll stop there. <laughs> okay, sure. And
0: I, and, I, and I cut you off. So, so you were talking mm-hmm. about the people who were broadly sympathetic to, mm-hmm. to what it is that you're saying, but then there are the others, presumably.
1: And then, and, and then there have been a few others. Um, the the negative reviews have started rolling out now. The the academic world moves on a much slower timetable than the um, the trade press world does. Sure. So when I didn't even realize there were galley proof editions that were published, this was a revelation to me that. Publishers send out copies of books six months before they're actually published, so that reviewers can read them in advance. I'd right. always thought, "Wow, that's amazing! How quickly reviewers get through these books and get the reviews out." Um, so, so anyway, they they move very quickly. The academic world they tend to like to chew on books for about a year before they start publishing um, publishing responses. The the trade reviews, some of which were written by by um, my colleagues, were. Um, I think uniformly positive. Um, very enthusiastic. I got a nice, um, um, a nice starred review in Publishers Weekly, which um, is something every writer dreams about. Yeah. Um, when I'm in, though I when I mention that to some of my colleagues in history, they'll say, "What's Publishers Weekly? <laughs> a, what's a starred review?" Well, so. So
0: it's, it's the new two cultures, as it were. But mm-hmm. Anyway, it
1: is um, the some of the the academic reviews have been cautiously positive, and then there have been. There's There have been a couple of sort of hysterically negative reviews, I think. Um, one.
0: Well, what, what's publishing to, to academic colleagues without generating at least
1: one hysterical negative review? Well, yeah, I mean, that's true. Otherwise, nobody's mm-hmm. actually paid any attention to what you've done. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I also have to admit I can't really have it both ways, because when I was writing this book, I thought, well, this is going to stir things up. Right. Um, this is going to make Scholar X angry, and it did, so I have to... Mission I, I have to live <laughs> with the fact that I succeeded in what I was doing. I, I, I couldn't attack them and have them love me as a result. Right. Um, probably a valuable lesson in there about foreign policy, too. But, probably. Um, one of the, I think the one review which has annoyed me the most, as um, the, the critic, um, um, who is again a very eminent historian, has sort of questioned my intellectual integrity, in that he said, I can't imagine why Rubenstein chose to publish with a trade press unless, if I'm remembering his diction correctly, he was afraid the um, work, working with an academic press, the shallowness of his evidentiary base would be exposed. And I, I felt like that that's a little below it's the belt. Bit,
0: it's a bit ad hominem, mm-hmm. one would say. Particularly
1: as the person has my email, and he always could have sent me an email and said, why did you publish with a trade press before? Well, he... no, no, but it's all, of course, grandstanding and yes. all the rest of that, as you, as you well, well appreciate. Well, thank you. And, well, it's obvious. I mean,
0: you may be completely wrong. It's still grandstanding. <laughs> uh, but um, it, let, let's get back. So there's the, all the academic sniping, and some mm-hmm. people are, are reasonably impressed, and some people are hysterical, especially if they cling to a radically mm-hmm. different view and and, and so forth. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I guess one of the things that's a little bit more substantive uh, that I'm curious to know within the, the world of scholarship is, are more people sort of, uh, sitting up and taking notice and saying, yeah, maybe this apocalypse thing, maybe there's more to that, maybe we should look, maybe we should do a little bit more research ourselves, mm-hmm. bearing that in mind, uh, looking at this as, as, as an appropriate, one of the appropriate metrics that, or windows by mm-hmm. which we can
1: actually look at this, uh, um, at this world. Is that happening? In that respect, I can say, yes, um, I, I've, I've been successful, maybe not just because of this book, but because of um, other things I've been writing and um, a few of my colleagues as well have grown interested in apocalyptic thought in other contexts, so it's it's been opened up. But the real um, concrete sign I can point to is that Cambridge is coming out with a new two-volume history of the Crusades, and um, these two volumes will include a chapter on apocalyptic thought and crusading, which I've been asked to write. And I I think that that's a sign that the people who are the gatekeepers of scholarship are now saying, okay, we do need to let this in. That this, this is right. part of our discussion. So right. I can be pleased with that. Indeed.
0: Let's get back to the impact, of, in your view, that the Crusades had. So these guys won. Mm-hmm. Um, you mentioned how uh, it, it, all sorts of interesting things seem to have happened from that, that it was formative to the, to the generation of this notion of nationalism, uh, Mm-hmm. Aspects of the chosen people, all the rest of the sorts of things. So, talk a little bit about what the impact of victory, unexpected, perhaps given, as you say, the uh, the long odds against a victory in the Crusades, and the fact that uh, that that Christianity up until then had not been riddled with all sorts of, uh, of victories, as you had pointed mm-hmm. out. But this was a victory, certainly a mm-hmm. military victory.
1: Um, so, what impact did it have? Well, I I think the impacts have been huge. They the I I never want to say, well, this caused this, Um, post hoc ergo propter hoc, as they say in logic classes. But I do think it acted as a catalyst to a lot of changes which were already occurring. Um, I think it it did shift a few historical movements in fundamentally new directions. Uh, One of them is uh, this sense of national identities coalescing, and particularly Frankish identity, which is a slightly archaic way of of saying French, Um, that I think after the First Crusade, the Franks are on the way to becoming the French, as it were. Um, And the 19th century historians, as is so often the case, were not entirely wrong in their enthusiasms. Uh, Guibert was somebody who was celebrating the achievements of his people, and he did frame it in ethnic terms. He was not a nationalist, but he did have a sense of there's something special about the Franks. Um, and it was related to the crusade. Look at what we accomplished. Um, the fact that this language of, of national pride, national identity, however, however you want to phrase it, is filtered through a biblical language made it all the more powerful and all the more resonant. Um, in particular, the language you were just referring to, the idea of chosen people. The great nationalistic work of all time, the ur-nationalist the work, as it were, is the Bible. And the nation is the nation of Israel. Um, God says, "You are a chosen people. I've set you before all others. Um, you're endowed with with special grace from from me." And um, this is a language which which Christians inherited. And there was always there's always a sense it's very fundamental to Christianity to Christian thought that we are supplanting the Jews, that the Jews only got part of the the revelation we've gotten at all. So Christians are the new chosen people, but I think when you combine that with we Frankish Christians are the new chosen people, it it gives you it gives this imaginative, very abstract construct some some sort of glue, as it were, that that people get get caught up in when they're when they're thinking about it or writing about it. So I think it spread this idea that we're all Frenchmen, we're all part of this French country, and I think in in sort of Almost rivalry to it, and you can see that you can see the rivalry starting with the Crusade chronicles. The Germans were saying, "But wait, we, um, we Lotharingians had a lot to do with this too. In fact, it's a Lotharingian who is now king of Jerusalem, and mm-hmm. um, it's not just the deeds of the Franks; it's the deeds of the Germans and the Lotharingians and all of these other people. Um, and when the, I, I think it also ultimately played into English identity. So in in some this. The, these languages of national identity became a lot more widespread and a lot more tangible because of the Crusade. Obviously, it opened up connections with the Eastern world that hadn't existed before, um, and this probably is one of the the unintended consequences, certainly one of the unexpected consequences of the Crusade, is that prolonged exposure to the enemy culture, um, and a prolonged interest in the Eastern world led inevitably to greater familiarity with them. and particularly with people who were on the ground, Muslims became not these mysterious embodiments of Antichrist that they were always presented as in crusading propaganda. They became the people you had to live with, fight alongside, occasionally fight against. Um, it's fairly astonishing that within 10 years of the first crusade, there were battles happening where um, half crusade, Frank, half Frankish Christian army, half Muslim armies were fighting against half-Frankish, half-Muslim armies on the other side. Mm. So um, those sort of cultural barriers were getting broken down. And um, long term, this seems to me to be a a very positive thing to have come out of
0: it. You also mentioned um, in, in, in your book that somewhat ironically this led to a greater entrenchment of the division between East and West as far as the Christian mm-hmm. churches go.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, that is the flip side. There's always a flip side, isn't there? Mm-hmm. Um, that, um, both with the churches and also with the world in general, as it, when when writers didn't celebrate the achievement of the Franks, um, they they would often celebrate instead or the achievements of a particular tribal group. They would say, look at what we Westerners have done. Um, the, the west has now moved east. And this is, it's on the one hand, it's a very old language. The Romans used it. you know When people wrote about Alexander the Great, it was, is he becoming too eastern the further he's marching into Persia? Right. But um, it hadn't really been something that made a lot of sense as far as current events went. Um, it was not a language which was much in use as near as I can see until the First Crusade happened. And suddenly there was a sense of, what separates us from Islam is not just it's not just a religious difference it's a geographic difference um, and geography and culture are intimately connected so it's look at what we Westerners have done against the East. This is also a time when the language of translatio imperi really takes hold the idea of of how empires have shifted and the the old model for how empires shift is it starts in the east with, say, the, the Assyrians or the Babylonians, and it gradually moves westward with the Greeks and the Romans, and then in what medieval people viewed as the twilight of history, it's settled in Francia, Western Europe. Um, after the first crusade happened, the, 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 the language was, um, it's, moved, it's reversed itself. West is now moving east right. and we're we're reclaiming all of this land so a sense a common sense of Western identity developed, and people who didn't fit in that, they were in the east. this included Muslims, obviously, but I think it also included the the Greek church that they are part of this Eastern world or they're a Western world which has been corrupted by a sort of effeminate um, and um erratic eastern sensibility so they' um I, I do think those differences set in they also set in in part because most of the writers who wrote about the crusade uh, took a very dim view towards the Greeks' part in it, towards what Constantinople had done mm-hmm. that their contribution had been either negligible or um stretching a little further it had, they they had actively campaigned against the the Crusaders by the end of the expedition that they they had sided with the Muslims. And this resentment clearly survives and and festers throughout the 12th century. Um, I'm not taking it as far as to say, well, the Fourth Crusade happened because of anger with the First Crusade. The Fourth Crusade was in 1204. Crusaders stopped short of the Middle East and sacked Constantinople. But um, there was I think, a a real resentment towards Constantinople that was stoked up by the Crusaders. One of them in particular, Bohemond, who is one of the most fascinating characters from the whole Crusading saga. He was the bastard son of a mercenary and he had been disinherited but he gradually put together a small estate in Italy. He joined the First Crusade and he became the uh, Duke of Antioch and then from there he was You're going to try to use that as a springboard to become Greek emperor. So here's this bastard mercenary who sees himself as potentially the emperor of the Greek world. And in order to get armies rallied after the first crusade to help him, he went to Europe, went on a preaching tour, and raised armies to go out and fight against the Greeks. Mm -hmm. Um, To promote himself, he said, look at all the great things we accomplished on crusade. But then in order to get people onto his side, he would say, and we did it in spite of the wicked Greek emperor who, um, who literally said he, he sank ships to drown people during the crusade. How he did this, I don't know. But you know, he, um, he betrayed us at every turn. So he, he spread a lot of hatred towards the Greek yeah. emperor that filtered into historical writing. Yeah. So yeah, west and east, um, the dividing line became a lot clearer after 1099. So moving to the present day, What are some of the
0: the challenges for you of, first of all, teaching uh, the crusade and and your knowledge of medieval history in a world which, as we mentioned at the very beginning of this conversation, seems to have eerily close parallels sometimes in in this post-9-11 world and some Mm -hmm. of the some current events that that are happening, be they in the Middle East or, or or sensibilities in the United States or Europe or elsewhere? Um, it, all of a sudden, as you said, this has become much more relevant than you would have uh, ever dreamed. Is there a downside to this? Is there? Mm-hmm. Uh, what are the challenges that are involved there?
1: Uh, there's there's a definite downside in that anytime time I try to draw some sort of lesson out of the crusade era, it sounds like I'm engaging in political commentary. Mm-hmm. So I, I have to be careful in what I say and, and, and think through it in a way I didn't necessarily need to when I first taught the Crusades in a, a pre religious war era in our history, um, but do you think there actually is just to push you? Are there mm-hmm. any
0: lessons that we could we could draw <laughs> from that? I mean, is there anything relevant when we go back mm-hmm. to say not not necessarily in a in a very trite and superficial way, uh, but is there anything that we can extract from the sensibilities from the activities that happened before that might be germane to to mm-hmm. contemporary discussions
1: uh, It does tie in with uh, what we, what we, again? What we were talking about earlier with the former president saying "crusade" and and, and using that language—it's it, um, relevant on on a I think on a lot of different levels. I just finished teaching the crusade class yesterday, and it was my summing up lecture. So I, I've been thinking in these terms okay. for the last 48 hours. And what's um, I, the lesson? I would I would push. It, it sounds very very simplistic and um, maybe not even worth mentioning but that is that the language of religious warfare is in and of itself dangerous and that goes for for whatever side chooses to embrace it uh, and I when when I heard uh, George Bush talk about how he needed to enter into a new crusade I, I did bang my head in despair that he was using this um, historical term inappropriately but there also had to go along with it the realization that um, if we do if we do latch onto this idea, the consequences could be pretty horrific um that we are we are surrendering a lot of what makes our our culture what it is and worthwhile um, in in the crusade class as i as I taught it this semester, it comes out a little differently every time, but as as I taught it this semester. We we start a point in the 11th century where the Muslim world is, as it's always reputed to be, and is is completely accurate. Far more sophisticated than the than the West. Far more cosmopolitan. Uh, far more wealthier. Um, far wealthier uh, on in every level, every in every sort of measurable cultural level. That's the place where you would have wanted to be if you were alive in the 11th century. Um, even with the advent of the Seljuk Turks, it's still it's still the the real cosmopolitan, exciting world—the uh, European world, by comparison—it's—it's it's coming out of a protracted period of economic crisis. But the education level is low. The—the um, the level of a culture of cultural achievement, in spite of a few luminaries like Saint Anselm, is is pretty low as well. There's very little understanding of the larger world, and the sense of the of the enemy which they have is that. Um, it is this distorted reflection of ourself. It's this dangerous, um, um uh, this sort of dangerous anti-Christian uh, apocalyptic enemy that we have to face now, etc., all the things I've been talking about. When we get to the end of the class, it's almost as if the two sides have changed. Mm-hmm. The Islamic world is now one dominated by the Mongols and the Mamluks. It's a very reactive, more enclosed world than it had been at the beginning. The Christian world is becoming... A lot more educated, a lot more cosmopolitan. It's no longer churchmen who are writing histories, or not exclusively knights who are writing history. Um, so lay people are. They have a much better sense of what the Islamic world is like. It's a much wealthier world, more of an outward-looking world. So they, it's, it's almost as if if the roles have um, have reversed. But additionally, what what has begun to almost frighten me more as I as I read these sources and think about them is that the kind of Mamluk culture which comes through in the sources that are written from that side. I I have to depend on translations when I'm reading them because I don't have Arabic, but the sources that come through on that side, it's not just that they sound like the first crusaders used to sound. They actually sound almost as monstrous as Muslims, as imagined by the first crusaders sounded. Really? Yeah, That they... Um, they do take a delight in going in and wiping out cities. They do almost brag about how they have raped Christian women and defiled altars. Um, they've, they've turned into the first crusaders' nightmare. So, The stereotype, or,
0: or yeah, what have you.
1: And I, I, I concluded with, if we have a moral to this story, it is when you engage in holy war, sometimes you're going to end up fighting the enemy you are most afraid of. And it's another variant on be careful what you ask for, I suppose. Mm-hmm, indeed.
0: Your upcoming research—Are mm-hmm. we done with the Crusades? Are you moving on somewhere, compl- or this cru- the first Crusade? Are you what? 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 A uh, what? Has uh, what, are you, what? Are you working on now? What? What has? Uh, what has this caused you to be thinking about?
1: Well, I'm planning to spend a good chunk of next year on leave in Oxford, and hopefully, we'll um, pretty quickly put together a another book drawing on some of the more acad- academic. Um, erudite things that were in the first draft of the book. It will essentially be a look at how attitudes towards the First Crusade as an apocalyptic event changed over the course of the 12th century. So maybe in a year's time I can give you much more specific answers than I was able to when you were asking me about that earlier. Mm -hmm. Um, In particular, I'll be looking at that encyclopedist who also I think was a great prophetic thinker. Uh, Lambert of Saint-Omer was his name, and then I'll be going up to someone who is a household word in the Middle Ages, but not necessarily outside of it, Joachim Fiore, who reinvented apocalyptic thought. And I'm going to try to draw connections and lines of influence between these two people. They also, happily for me, both of them were great pictorial thinkers. So they didn't just do prophecies, they did did very beautiful pictures associated with their prophecies. And um, the book will be at least pleasing to the eye, if not always (laughs) to the mind.
0: (laughs) I wanted to ask you one thing before I, I turn it over to you once again. Um, you talked about uh, uh, this intersection, how the Christians were changed by the crusade and, and, and what had happened to, to the Muslims and the Seljuk Turks in particular and so forth. But mm-hmm. um, was there a certain sense of, of a lack of faith on the, on the Islamic side of the coin? Was there, mm-hmm. was there a sense of the, their foundations having been shaken, having lost the... the the mm-hmm. First Crusade, or was it just oh, well, this was just one battle, and this, you know battles happen, and uh, unfortunate. Mm-hmm. Or, or was there a certain moral uh, sense of,
1: of of concern, or, or decline, or, or however? Um, as near as I can tell, on the whole, it was more the latter. There was a sense of well, we lost this battle, um, but things will probably turn around. Uh, but there were a few people who looked at it differently. Um, in particular, there was a writer whose name was al-Salami, who wrote a book called The Book of Jihad, and it was a description of what jihad ought to be, and, in, and it was written in response to what had happened in Jerusalem, that this army has taken, uh, taken Jerusalem away from us, and as he described the army, he said, they are fighting jihad for Christ. They're, they're, they're Christian jihadists. And the reason why they succeeded is we haven't been doing jihad as we should. Right. And then here are the ways we should that we should be practicing it. And he, he set out a program for Islamic Holy War, which it took about 40 or 50 years to start circulating and to, to start becoming the, the coin of the realm, as it were. But um, it, it did take eventually. So uh, initially, when the crusade happened, I think the Islamic world looked at the crusaders and thought these are an unusually violent group of Greek mercenaries who have been sent against us, of Christian mercenaries. And then gradually they're developed an understanding of, no, this, this was an entirely different sort of operation. And to fight, I don't know if they, if, they, if they consciously thought through, if we're going to defeat these people, we have to adopt their means. But over time they did adopt, uh, re-adopt, rediscover a language of jihad, and then apply it against, Christ, uh, against Christians. And the legacy and this is outside of
0: your your domain, presumably, but uh, mm-hmm. I, i'm sure you've thought about this as well. The legacy in the Islamic mind of the first crusade um, is it as is it as strong as one might naively believe, not knowing mm-hmm. very much about it I mean here was this period of time when the, the, these these invading hordes came, and this great mm-hmm. deal of butchery came seemingly out of nowhere, I would imagine for them mm-hmm. uh, and certainly made them uh, uh, could well, one, one could certainly argue that one should be a lot more suspicious of these uh, <laughs> of these Christian guys than uh, than they might have been led to believe. Uh, what's your view of the of the legacy of the First Crusade from the Islamic perspective?
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it depends on where you're standing sure. as you think about it, uh, and I, I can't help but push against my colleagues a little bit anytime I answer a question. It's the 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 prevailing view for which there is absolute certainty in the evidence is that after the Crusade era ended 1291 when Acre was retaken, the Crusades were all but forgotten in the Islamic world. The great hero to come out of the Crusade movement for Islam was Baybars, who had, who had done most of the grunt work of driving the Crusaders out, but from the, the Islamic perspective, the war was won and, and there was no reason to really dwell on it. It was a 200 year long conflict and they had succeeded. And for, uh, probably from the Muslim perspective, for the next three or four hundred years, if you wanted to latch on to a great historical moment, it would be not that they had driven the Franks out, that was almost a footnote on they'd stopped the Mongols, that there had been a great Mongol advance and Islam had prevailed against them. Um, Then a lot of things happen, as they tend to do over the course of several hundred years. There's the, the Ottoman Turks, the Ottoman Empire, um, and towards the end of the Ottoman era in the late 19th century, there was a rediscovery of the Crusades in the Islamic world. It is perhaps ironically, mean, I think irony is the great driving force in history, uh, perhaps ironically it had to do with Europeans visiting the Holy Land um, in particular. Uh, the uh, Bismarck in Germany, when he vis- he visited the tomb of Saladin to pay homage to this great hero, who was celebrated much more in the West than he was in the East. Mm. So, an awareness of the history of the Crusade um, reemerged in the Islamic world, and it happened to dovetail with the great colonial adventures in the Middle East. So, it was not it's not that hard when you have is developing historical awareness with the, that colonial political situation to think they're doing it again. Uh, the Crusaders are back. Right. So um, it's established a context mm-hmm. to some extent of, mm-hmm. of, of
0: pattern of criminal activity. Exactly. <laughs> there,
1: there's a tendency for, for Western writers and to say, well, obviously they haven't been mad about it for several hundred years, so they don't have any right to be mad about it now. Right. Um, whatever. <laughs> There, there is definitely today a memory of the Crusade. It's built into, uh, it's built into the the Arabic world, the Arab worldview, Arabic language. Um, we are the Crusaders again, and it's probably in, incumbent upon us to not act like Crusaders if we don't want to be thought of in that way. We being citizens of the Western world, citizens of America and Europe.
0: That's great. Is there anything that I haven't? Mentioned. Is there anything that we haven't had a chance to talk about that you'd like to add? Is there something that I've
1: omitted or? Um... Um, I feel like we've covered everything pretty well. My my brain is, is rapidly approaching exhaustion. So.
0: Well, that's where we like to stop. All right?
1: right?
0: <laughs> just before just before exhaustion. Well, thank you very much, Jay. It's been right. a pleasure chatting with. Enjoyed you. it very Thanks much. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this reformatted podcast. As mentioned at the outset. This conversation is also available both as an individual ebook and as part of the e-book and paperback Conversations About History, Volume 2, along with separate discussions with Linda Colley, John Elliott, Richard Janko, and Maria Mavruti. Those interested in more information about Ideas Roadshow are directed to IdeasRoadshow.com, while those who are curious about me and other projects I'm involved in are recommended to visit HowardBurton.com. Thanks very much for listening, and I hope you'll tune into another Ideas Roadshow podcast on the New Books Network soon. We release a new one each Wednesday.